So today, my buddy Glenn Murphy and I talk about a thorny problem that pretty much all of us are facing these days, which is how to evaluate claims in areas where we aren't experts. Now, I know what you're thinking, but you and Glenn, between the two of you, are experts in everything. Well, thank you very much, but no, because I'm, you know, I'm pretty good into um, certain aspects of behavioral science, and I'm pretty good on the history of the New York Yankees from the late 1930s until the early 80s. But of course, that leaves an awful lot of things that I'm not an expert on. For example, <laughs> health and nutrition, politics, economics, business, geology, environmental science, and just about everything else. In other words, my entire life is predicated on some kind of algorithm for deciding what I believe. And that's probably true of you as well. You know what you believe and who you believe, and where you're certain and where you aren't so sure. But do you know how you arrived at your conclusions? Because I didn't. So this conversation with Glenn helped me identify and articulate my own, shall we say, epistemological heuristics, to use two words that frankly, I'm not sure exactly what they mean, let alone how to spell them without the age of a spell checker. And I was surprised at the high emotional valence that went into my decisions about what and who to trust. Because I want to be rational. <laughs> And it was interesting to me to acknowledge just how much stake I put into like experts being kind and humble as opposed to like having expertise and unvarnished authority. So Glenn and I talk frankly about the researchers and clinicians who have fallen victim to ego stroking rather than truth seeking. And we share examples from the whole food plant-based world, from the world of metabolomics, which is about uh, you know metabolism, from the arguments about who has the best martial art and from the annals of positive and behavioral psychology. So if you're interested in the truth, I think this conversation will both challenge and delight you. So without further ado. Howie, how are you, man? Welcome back. Good. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, it's, it's been a bit. I had a, I had a three-week to four-week layoff from the podcast, so I had a, um, a bit of a gap there as I was traversing across the United States with my family, road tripping all the way to Texas and back, and experiencing all of the major animal phyla, I think. Like a bat dropped on my wife. We had a cotton mouth swimming next to us in the, in the river. It's uh, we've, uh, innumerable, innumerable invertebrates and biting things, so it's a, it was quite a camping experience, and, the, and the, but had some nice human contact as well, so that was good post-COVID. <laughs> Yeah, well, the, the pictures all looked very peaceful. It didn't they? Didn't they? Didn't indicate the uh, yeah the America part. The animal attacks were between the frames. <laughs> there was one actually that we shared. Um, I'm like waist deep in this river, and my kids are on a big inflatable thing. We just kind of floated down the river that we were camping next to, and right at the moment you shot it, you can see that I'm like frowning and and staring at something just off shot, and that was um, a snake swimming past us in the water with a alarmingly flat head with a beveled bit, which is normally way way my kind of rule of thumb for discerning venomous from non venomous. If they're like smooth, like and if, then like that, like a worm, then usually they're fine but if they have if the back of the head flares out a little bit then you're like eh, it's probably venomous so i'm pretty sure i think it was a cotton mouth so um yeah <laughs> so i was like kids stay on the inflatable <laughs> let's wait for this guy to swim away <laughs> so that was kind of fun so um so i thought we'd uh, a bit of a chat today about um partly because it's been a while since we caught up on things um and also because we've had a bit of a back and forth over text um on a couple of different things really uh, on some ideas relating to nutrition um, and some ideas relating to exercise. And then it just kind of occurred to me that this is kind of dovetailing with other conversations I'm having with my, um, some of my systemic students on kind of discerning, 
truth from reality insofar as we can do that and discerning when we might be getting led astray by a really appealing idea you know an idea that's really exciting and it has a great story behind it and that compelling story and maybe the you know the personality and the charisma of the person that's telling the story can be enough sometimes for us to be like good enough for me i'm pretty sure that's true right um and then later on when something else comes along to contradict it we're thrown into this kind of like oh man i really wanted to believe that and now something else is happening um i'm pretty sure both of these are true in some way but how do i kind of reconcile that in my head so i mean this is kind of something that i've been wrestling with most of my like academic life as well as uh, moving you know from trained science into into additional ways of thinking let's put it that way as well um mm. and uh, and one that's never fully resolved but i thought we might have have a crack at some of the, the the concrete examples of of how we sort this out how you do it how i do it um and this might be of benefit then to people listening whether they're trying to improve their health they're trying to improve diet exercise nutrition or whether they're just trying to stay on a good path for training and keep keep making good progress in skill acquisition and stuff sounds great um, i'm in Cool. Right. So, um, so the, the problem that we're faced with right now, right. And this has always been a problem is how do we discern what is true from what is false? And, um, and it kind of occurs to me that they're in terms of purveyors of falsehoods, right. There's kind of two categories. There's like your straight charlatans and liars, like people who know that they're peddling bullshit, right. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they know what they've got is false and they're just trying to, they have another motive. They have some other kind of, um, intrinsic motivation for getting you to buy the thing or believe them or whatever it's going to be. And this can go, this can be anything from, you know, yoga gurus who want to build up a, like a harem of, of women to have sex with, right. <laughs> Where it's going to be, um, all the way through to kind of diet gurus who kind of know that their stuff isn't really right. And it's not really backed up, but they sell a lot of books and they, you know, they, they sell a lot of products and ideas or like, you know, little powdered things that you pour into drinks and people lose weight. I don't know, but all that kind of stuff, right. This kind of snake oil salesman. So that's one category, but the other category of people are, um, a range of people who believe what they believe and that they absolutely believe it to be true. And they're spreading those ideas with a view to helping people. Um, and this can range from the, the fanatical, you know, the people who are absolutely fanatical that their ideas are right and need to be spread, whether it's Jesus or paleo or veganism or CrossFit or whatever it is, right? People need to do this. They need to understand it. Otherwise, you know, they'll be worse off. So in in a way that comes from a good place, right? Um, and all the way down to people who are not quite as fanatical, but they 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 believe quite strongly in their idea and uh, and they're convincing enough that you get pulled along with them. Have you got any additional thoughts on that? Well, very often the second group are consumers of the first group, hmm. right? Like I've put myself in that second group where, so if I surround myself by enough people who share enough studies about veganism, about this being the one right way to eat. Yeah. Right. I, you know, I've just like, well, look at the science. I mean, like I've written, you know, a bunch of books just collating the science and I'm like, yeah, this is overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and, okay. and, you know, what, so the question is what, you know, what may be missing mm. in terms of, well, am I getting a balanced diet of information and, mm. You know, am I cherry picking? Yeah. So, so therein lies the problem in the modern age, right? This has always been a problem. There's always been conflicting ideas and people that will tell you different points of view on a given thing, whether it's health or, you know, whether it's medicine, you'll have conflicting doctors in ancient Greece or ancient China. And um, to one of them, one of them will say, you know, 
that's leeches. Definitely leeches are the way forward. And somebody else will be like, just make him very cold for a long time, right? And they'll argue about it and you don't know who to believe. Um, and, but now it seems like there's so many opinions and it's such a kind of dizzyingly information-rich world that it can be hard to sift through all the wheat, um, you know, to sift the wheat from the chaff. Like there's so much chaff. <laughs> it's like, it, it, it's crazy. So it's, it's hard to even get started on that project sometimes. So I think we're using different rules of thumb. We're just kind of, we're, we're relying a lot more um, on kind of crowdsourcing our knowledge to an extent, right? Crowdsourcing, if it's highly prevalent on Facebook or Instagram, or it seems like somebody, um, you know, it's very, very popular with a good number of people who I kind of already trust, then good enough for me, right? And, and I'll run with that. I could go and read all the studies and I could go and look at alternative points of view and I could read all the meta-analyses and all the, the counter-arguments and things like that. But who has time for that shit, right? There's, there's literally, even though we have access to all that stuff, we don't have to go to the library and learn the Dewey Decimal System anymore to pull these things out. Like we could do it in a lot less time, but there's still, there's exponentially more information available on almost any subject. You know, it's hard to find a niche subject in which there aren't at least 12 opinions now, you know? Um, so, so what additional problems does that pose? I mean, for you, let's, let's get with a concrete example, right? You're fairly, or have been fairly convinced for a, for a long time that, if not veganism, then whole food, plant-based eating um, is the most healthy diet that you can have, right? For a long period of time, um, that's been your um, that's been your bedrock, right? And, and that's a large part of your podcast. It's a large part of your health coaching practices, things like that as well. Deep down, how do you decide that that is true enough that, that, that you feel confident in being an authority and coaching other people in that? Right. So... A few, I th I'd say a few things. Yeah. Um, one is I think it's very useful for me to publicly announce that I really don't know. Mm. Right. So there's always like even when you you know if you do a uh, the world's best random controlled trial with huge yeah. numbers, mm -hmm. you're still reporting confidence intervals. Right. Sure. Mm. So there's always an unknowability. And so, so I think there's, you know, the, one of the things that I love about science, that pure scientific method is that there's humility baked into it. Mm -hmm. In right? theory. Like, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's why I said pure, like yeah. You know, yeah. science versus scientists. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So to say like, I really believe this, but I could be wrong. Mm. Right. Like when, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's people who will, who will say, you know, the earth is flat and vaccines don't work and all this stuff. And they'll point to Galileo. Yeah. Right. Or Copernicus and say, see, people have believed bullshit for millennia. And, and so people are believing bullshit now. Yeah. And I think that's the wrong way to use that fact. But I think the right way to use it is to say, we really do need to be humble mm. about what we know and what we don't know, which means like, what does that mean? Um, you know, in terms of practice, it means it's very important to not live in your echo chamber. Yeah. It means you want to look for people who have different points of view mm -hmm. and learn from them if mm. you can. So very often I'll see an article and it'll say something that's the opposite of what I believe to be true and mm. I'll follow it. Now, most of the time it's, you know, Facebook algorithm, clickbait bullshit. Yeah. So like bacon is the fountain of youth. <laughs> and, and, the, and the article is about. Don't tell me it's not. 
you're just shattering my reality. Yeah, yeah I, should, I should, I should, I should, I should, you know, ease into this. Yeah, I don't want to hear this truth. <laughs> well, the the, the article, uh, the study um, that I eventually found was that um, this type of uh, a flatworm that's given supplemental niacin lives a, an average 11 days versus 10 days. And there's niacin in bacon. Oh, wow. That's quite a stretch. That's, that's, so, that's a, that's a, yeah. so it's, you know, that's, it wasn't too much of a stretch for baconbabe.com. <laughs> <laughs> but baconbabe then gets picked up by, you know, some bigger blog, which then gets picked up eventually, you know, and eventually it ends up in like a column on menshealth.com. Mm. Right. So, yeah. you, want, you know, it's like, but, but I didn't look at it just to debunk it and make fun of it, but to say like, what, what do other people know? Like mm. there's enough people out there who are doing keto and paleo and Mediterranean um, and variations on those that mm. look pretty good to me. They look yeah. pretty healthy and they publish their blood work. And I'm yeah. like, well, maybe there's other ways to, yeah. to be healthy. Now, maybe long-term those are bad. Right? There's a bunch of studies that seem to show that keto decreases lifespan. Uh, but like, I don't like, I believe that whole food plant-based is a, is an optimal uh, dietary pattern. I don't but, know if the hmm. optimal dietary pattern or the only one or, yeah. the, or the one for everyone. I honestly don't know. So, yeah. So that, so there's a couple of things in there that we'll come back to. First of all, that, that requirement for humility, right? So let's say you're looking at something um, and you don't want to just kind of read it with the filter that you already know the truth in this. And so either this reinforces your existing truth and it says, here's another five reasons and another study why veganism rules and paleo sucks, right? And you read the article and you're like, yeah, I feel very affirmed and validated and one better at one notch up today as an expert because I'm telling people this and there it is more evidence that this is true, right? And I might do the same thing with studies on breathing right? Uh, a new study comes out that says, wow, the only real way to control yourself under stress. And there was, I think there was one on the Huberman lab um, podcast, like a, a couple of months ago on this. And there was something else that was shared by um, some study at Stanford saying that, yeah, the only real way to get control of your stress response system like in the moment is controlled breathing. And then they went into one kind of tested method of controlled paced breathing that they did in the study and sort of said, this is if not the, then a very, very strong method. And this absolutely works. And I'm like, we, and I share this on my pages and all that kind of stuff. And I feel quite proud of myself because I talk so much about breathing and, and it's validated by, you know, quote, established science and um, for once. And you do the same thing, but it, it, it takes a lot of humility to go from that to seeing something that says breathing doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, you can, you can de-stress yourself with imagery or you can de-stress yourself by organizing your house properly, Marie Kondo style or something, right? Um, or for, in your case, seeing something that really does seem to, maybe not bacon babe, but something a little bit more convincing, you know, seeing those kind of keto figures. And, th and the problem with that is, again, right, you, you can draw up innumerable studies on whole food plant-based eating and even veganism, right? Well, let's, let's just stick with whole food plant-based like, as a whole. You can draw up tons and tons and tons of studies um, that show that you can recover from long-term illness. Sometimes when you go to whole food plant-based, um, you can you know, reverse uh, the onset of diabetes. There's all kinds of things that you can do. But there are also studies that show that switching to kind of like a a paleo diet or a keto diet can do the same thing, right? And and the assertion that kind of we don't know the long term harm. Maybe you know if you're 
we do kind of know the long-term effects of being whole food plant-based in a sense, because we have societies and cultures that have done that for long periods and have been studied for long periods. And we've seen some of the transitions, like in the China study, something like that, right? So with fairly good confidence, you can say we've seen when this works in the wild, right? Not just in in vitro or with a worm or something, right? We've seen whole populations of people try this. And then for some reason or another, they get shifted, like in the China study. And we've seen some of those effects. And so this is a fairly solid educated guess that here's how healthy they were before. Here's the new problems causative link and we're fairly sure that there's long-term effects going on but i I think it's very hard to do the same thing for something like paleo or keto because there just aren't long-term really long-term studies of following somebody who's done a keto diet for like 30 or 40 years and then a control population has eaten any other way in the same circumstance you know what i mean so it's some of these things are too new and so asserting that the long-term thing gives you damage is still extrapolating from from small evidence in this so making the same kind of mistake that bacon bait does in a way but just like in a, in a more subtle way so it's not just the weight of evidence right it's, it's not sufficient just to say there's lots of articles on this there's lots of articles on this um, it's who's writing those, like it's how it's written. It's, it's the assumptions that are made in the experiment design. Even if your sole um, kind of measure for discerning the truth or untruth of anything is how close to the pure scientific method was this, it's still difficult, right? It's still very, very difficult. You can't rely on that as your one beacon. People say that you can, um, but you really can't because of the the human aspect and because of the social aspect, because of the financial aspect of how, you know, citations and papers are written and how people build scientific careers, right? Um, and scientists themselves can be fanatical about what they're working on. And they, they present ideas above and beyond sometimes um, the usefulness of, of what they've actually found. Not, not everybody, and some are great. But again, now you have to discern between who are the good ones and who aren't. So even within like, okay, everybody, these people are using what I think is the scientific method, you're still making a value judgment on who you trust, aren't you? At some point, it just comes down to, did somebody I trust say so? And that really is the metric that we usually use. Right? Yeah, and I think it's, it's, it's very hard to as you know for scientists for good ethical caring scientists who are searching for the truth mm. to not fall into the trap of over you know what's it over you know extending over their skis or yeah right and you know we've i've seen this with um with people who you know depending on how quickly they kind of get slapped back to reality mm. you know some, some of the, some of the people i'm thinking of are amy cuddy who gave okay. that that ted talk on body you know, power poses. Oh, not aware of that one. So, you know, it's like one of the, like the top two or three Ted talks ever. So basically that, you know, if you assume a power pose and let let the audio record show that I'm like, you know, sort of like Superman arms out, you know, chest up, looking up. End scene of platoon. (laughs) That, you know, that makes people more confident. It makes them, you know, in studies and in behavioral studies, they are more assertive and like turning off the fan, the annoying fan, things like that. Mm. And um, their like IgA levels and saliva change Mm. demonstrate. And this was like, this was the research. And, you know, all of a sudden, like, oh, great. So women can equalize their power positions in, in corporate America by assuming power poses. And that was the talk. And then it turns out nobody's able to replicate it. And her yeah. own lab didn't really replicate it. And they compared not power poses versus neutral, but power poses versus the opposite, fetalizing. Okay. Right. And that's how they got, like, like the, the idea was so 
seductive. So hang on, just to, to clarify. So they, so in Amy Cuddy's study, the one that she was drawing from, they weren't comparing power pose with no pose. They were comparing power pose with fetalizing, right? Right, right. That's fascinating from our point of view because we know or we believe right, that um, fetalizing has net effects that are detrimental towards those kinds of behaviors. Like we could predict that it would go the other way, that you're actually creating a negative balance there. So that's about the furthest thing from a control that you could have created. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, and she came under a ton of criticism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, this is about humans and a lot of it was very nasty, mm. <laughs> right. You know, and sexist and derogatory and okay. she kind of, you know, like left the public eye for a while. I think he probably had to go recover like just mm. spiritually. Um, okay. And then there's also, you know, Brian Wansink, who, um, who did the work on mindless eating. He has a book, Mindless Eating. Okay. And in, in my impeccable timing, I had him on the podcast. And he basically talks about like the bigger, you know, if you have a big plate, you'll eat more. Sure. Um, if you have a bigger spoon, you'll eat more. And he did these experiments with- The bowl, bottomless bowl. Bottomless bowl, or, you know, or stale popcorn in a movie versus stale popcorn in a lab setting. Hmm. The, the week I published my podcast interview with him, he was basically like censured and thrown off the faculty at Cornell for fabricating results. Hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, so I don't know the truth of any of this. This is like, you know, he said, she said, they both seem like really nice people. Yeah. Uh, but I think they both had an idea that seduced them beyond, right. beyond the evidence. Yeah. And, you know, and so I think the, the I think there's a, there must be some sort of discipline mm. for, for science to say I've got to go actively search out um, what's you know dis counterfactuals or yeah, things counterfa that might yeah mm. yeah so a great example of this you know Danny Kahneman mm. uh, and Amos Tversky who you know are, are are intellectual heroes with behavioral economics. Thinking uh, fast and slow. The book. Yeah, if, uh, if, if there was another guy. Read it. Uh, Gary Klein was saying, "No, this is this is not how it works." And mm. they got together and they did a studies together because, like, mm. hey, we totally disagree on this. Yeah, but, you know, the the three of them were such pure scientists. They're like, "What's going on? Yeah, what? Why are we disagree?" Yeah, and they, you know, and they discovered nuance. Like, ah, in this situation, this in this mm. other situation, that. Yeah. See, that's beautiful. And that's what we want to believe. Uh, most of science is built around that people look for ways to disprove their own theory, but human nature holds that it just isn't such. Right. And, um, and that gets into like an interesting thing of like what we want to be true versus what is true and, and what can be true. And we'd love that to happen all the time, but being realistic, people, scientists being people aren't going to do that i don't think for the most part and so the bulk of science is not being done in that way it's being done by people who have an idea and they become attached to that idea they test that idea if it doesn't work out maybe they'll drop it but if if for them they've proved something and they've succeeded in making some little dent in the in the pantheon of knowledge right then that's theirs now and they're going to build on that to get more funding they're going to build on that to get more work to hire other people to support their lab full of postdocs whatever it's going to be right um so if somebody comes along and challenges that the, the response is not like oh that's fascinating let me do work with you and we'll both figure out why my thing might be wrong and i should not be funded anymore do you know what i mean it's um it's not typically the way that things go normally they circle the wagons um and and just defend 
right down to the last man, right? Alamo style. Although apparently at the Alamo, most of the people walked out and surrendered and got executed anyway. So that's a myth. But, um, but you know, the idea is that the, the idea kind of doesn't survive contact with reality. The idea that science is done in this impersonal, dispassionate way really does. So that the, you telling that story is almost like it's, it's beautiful and it's lovely because we kind of know that that's not really not usually the way that it goes. Right? And I think I think there's a bigger problem, which is to be a scientist and to get funding, you have to be the star quarterback. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, you're not going to be the offensive or defensive lineman, the grunt workers, which means you're you know, like what we need in science is duplication of yeah. results. Yeah. Right? And we don't get that. So there's a there's a study. And it says something really weird and amazing. And mm. everyone's like, oh, wow, like this is the new thing, right? Because it's, it's more interesting. Yeah. Like if I sent you an article that says broccoli is good for you, you might not open the link. If I sent you an article that says, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts are good for you. He's like, what? Mm. Right? So our, it's just our brains going like, oh, novelty. Yeah, because we, we filter for surprise. Like we, you know, surprise is a, a, something that we crave. <laughs> like. Yeah. yeah. So if we, if we don't, if most of science is not attempting to replicate yeah. results, how trustworthy is any of it? Yeah. And, and that point about the power poses to, you know, people feeling more confident and things like that, uh, that speaks to a, a larger problem in, in psychology, I think, which has been called, you know, the replication crisis, right? That, um, that so many of these findings, especially in psychology papers from like the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, right? Um, and now people are going back through and trying to replicate them and can't like there's something like, I don't know what the figure is. I think something like 90% of them cannot be replicated when they designed the study, the way that the people said that they did, which means that you start to believe mm, how true is this stuff? And it's shaky at best, but that seems to me to be in a weighted in a big, big way towards psychology and um, in which studies are very, very difficult to constrain and design in such a way that they're not open to those problems. But it's by no means completely restricted to that, right? It's very, very easy to design a nutrition study or even a double-blind control study that does nothing but prove that's what happens when you do this kind of double-blind control study. Right? <laughs> that hasn't really proved what they think it's proving as it goes outside of it. So it's a problem that there is a bit of a crisis. But, um, but again, I, I don't know whether the the weight of evidence argument is, is sufficient for us to solve the problem because that's not really what we do, right? We, we certainly can't acquire all the knowledge by ourselves, right? We certainly can't do all the research and do all the experiments and run all the PCR tests and, you know, interview all the people. If, if we tried to do that, um, and I think it was that there was an article in Medium a while back about how do we discern truth from reality, and it might have been in relation to the, the vaccine, anti-vaccine movement, things like that. But one of the points that it was making in there was that, the the quest to kind of be to be a sole discerner of knowledge right to just be like i don't trust the government i don't trust scientists i don't trust nutritionists i don't trust health coaches or martial arts instructors right the only thing that's true is what i know for myself and that's absolute fallacy it's absolutely impossible to discern truth in, in any useful way that way um because you're you're limited to what you can experience yourself and moreover you're marking yourself as the sole arbiter of what knowledge can be, right? With the limits of your knowledge and the limits of your power of powers of discernment and judgment, you are deciding that the only knowledge exists is essentially the knowledge that I know and judge to be true already, which means you can essentially never 
know, learn anything new, or you can only really delude yourself as to whether or not something, so truth becomes personal judgment and that's it, right? So all of these people that say that, I don't trust the government, I don't trust scientists, I don't trust at all. If they refuse to res- to recognize any kind of expertise or authority um, or kind of collective wisdom, if, if they're doing that and they're trying to be on, the, on their own, then they're setting themselves up immediately for disappointment. You know that they're going to be straying as far, very, very far from logic very, very far from reason, very, very far from actually what's what reality is. And, and, you know, we can get into deep philosophical ideas of what even is reality. It's something we all agree on. Um, but it's almost the opposite of what Tyson Yoko Porta talks about, you know, in his like cultural collective knowledge and an indigenous knowledge in which knowledge really is like reality really is what the tribe creates and what everybody agrees is true. And you can't know anything in a vacuum. And that's, that's absolutely true in a practical sense, right? If we don't trust any scientists, we don't trust anybody in the government, we don't trust anybody at all, then you're just a yokel in a hut making value judgments for yourself. And you can't claim, you cannot claim that you know everything. You can't, you'd have to be omnipotent to be able to make that claim. Well, and listen, I just ordered the book, um, The Extended Mind. Yeah, uh, by uh, Annie Murphy Paul mm. makes that point. Like our brains evolved for a particular purpose. Yeah, right. And the purpose is to sort of navigate outdoor space and social interactions. Yeah, and so you know, so we have biases towards that that are very evolutionarily advantageous to do what everyone around us is doing. Yeah, right. Whether they're right or not. Yeah, right. So I was talking with Josh Lajani, you know, yesterday about you know him being a progressive in a MAGA world down in yeah. South Louisiana. And like how 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 easy is it for people in that community to to all be MAGA, to all yeah. be flying, you know, the you know the the vaccines are a hoax sure. government uh, conspiracy flag. Hmm. Uh, because it's more important for our survival to hmm. be in agreement with our tribe than to be right. Yeah, or on the flip side, if you're, you know, if you're in a community in, you know, Oregon or or Seattle or something like that, or or you know, middle of New York, where everybody is is talking about nothing but, you know, critical race theory or other stuff like that. If you're the if you're the one person who's just like, yeah, I don't care that much about critical race theory, it's quite hard. <laughs> it's it will be difficult to go against the grain of those people, like the super liberals as well. So it doesn't matter which chamber you're in. Do you know what I mean? It's um it's hard to it, it, it's harder to resist. It's harder to kind of be the be the nail that sticks up and probably will get hammered down um, than it is to go with the flow. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for myself, one of the things I think about is like, maybe I don't need to find the truth. Maybe I just need to find good enough. Yeah. So this, so this is an absolute question that I wanted to get to. Right. Um, so if it's, if it's never about finding absolute truth and it's only about finding truth that's good enough for now, and there are actually lots of philosophies of science that say that that's all that science is anyway, right? Scientists will talk about theories and hypotheses and laws. And by the time something becomes a law, then it's, that's it. It's a fact. It's like, but real philosophers of science will tell you there's no such thing as a scientific fact. There's only a highly corroborated theory, right? That's it. And it can be extraordinarily highly corroborated. But then what does corroborated means mean? It means that lots of people that you trust because somebody said they're scientists or they got their degree at Stanford or whatever it's going to be, have agreed on that idea. So ultimately you're not, you're still crowdsourcing your, your uh, constitution of knowledge, right? Your constitution of knowledge is still dependent on expertise. It's dependent on trust. That trust 
leaves holes that enable people to exploit us if they want to, right? If we do trust people and they're not trustworthy or they're, you know, charlatans or something like that, then that's the whole. So, th- so there's the dichotomy, right? It's really, really tough. You have to weigh that up all the time. It's like the, you can't know. So how do you decide not whether something is true, but is good enough for you? So let's get, give it a concrete example, because otherwise we can get into like a, a philosophy discussion here and everybody will get very bored, right? Um, let's take a recent example. So the Herman Ponzer book, the Burn... Um, how your body, how exercise and calories really work. What's, I can't remember the exact title of the book. So. Yeah. Something like that, right? Um, burn, how what the, the real story off? about how calories. Some, some marketer got their hand on the, on the cover. Something like that. Right? Blows right. the lid off. Yeah. Yeah. So, so essentially it's right now, I mean, this is an idea that's been around for about a decade, but it's not scientific establishment, right? It's not something that everybody agrees on. I mean, nutrition is tricky anyway, but can you, can you give us an overview of what his, what his view is and why it's controversial, why the book would be controversial at all with, with anybody in the dieting world. Well, he says that we basically have a calorie constraint model that we, that our bodies burn roughly the same amount of calories every day on average. Yep. Not that mm-hmm. if you run a marathon one day and, but on average we're, we're, you know, men, you know, men burn about 3000 calories a day, women, a little North of 2000. And mm-hmm. whether you, when you exercise, you're not adding to that. We're just shifting a caloric burn from other things. Right. So in the, to clarify in the short term, we're not saying that if you run a marathon or like, you know, do high intensity inf- interval training for two hours today, that you will not burn more energy, that you will not use more energy. We're not saying that. We're just saying in the short term that might happen. But if you're looking at exercise as a way of burning off energy, right, that you eat via food and therefore you can eat more food and then just exercise more and burn it off. It doesn't work in, at least in the long term. We know that it doesn't work. And the, the, the formative example, the one that stuck in my head from your interview with him, I haven't read the book yet and it's fascinating, but um, is this idea that he gets this from studying Hudzi tribesmen in, is it Tanzania or Kenya? Something like that. Tribesmen in Tanzania, Northern Tanzania. Tanzania, yeah, who have a very active, they, they move as much in a day as most Americans do in like a week and a half or something like that, right? Um, it's all day hunting and gathering, building and dancing and doing stuff, right? Um, versus sedentary American, right? And they both have, after time, like as a net average over time, they have about the same energy expenditure per day. It's that like 3,000 calories or whatever, you know, energy equivalent is going to be. It's like, how can you how can you account for that if one of them is moving so much more than the other one? And it's that the person that's moving, their bodies have just adjusted to that over time. That becomes the new normal. Um, and, they're t- and they're taking energy from other systems. And in the Hudsey's case, that's actually quite beneficial because it pulls energy away from an overactive immune system, right? Or, or overactive other places. But in the sedentary Americans case, without that exercise, right? Yeah, then they're not putting on weight because they're not exercising. They're putting on weight because they're eating a ton, right? More than they're, they're, than their act- bodies actually need, not just for movement, but for everything. Um, and those, the energy has to go somewhere. And that other, that energy that's not being spent by the, the Hudsey, but by them in the sense in exercise is put towards the immune system and being overreactive and an and elevated inflammatory response and the stress response as well, which is very, very relevant to me and my work in, in stress proofing as well. So that this, this kind of idea that there's kind of, yeah, there's ups and there's downs in the short term, but if you're looking at long-term strategies for eating and exercising, you should exercise, but not to lose weight because that's not what happens. There's a trade-off, right? And there's a fixed energy budget. And sooner or later, your body will just take energy from other systems, not from your fat cells. Right. And, you know, and I asked him, like, why would our bodies, like, assume we don't exercise, 
why are our bodies so stupid that, that they're sort of ramping up immune response when it becomes counterproductive and inflammatory? Why mm -hmm. do we have this heightened stress response? Like what, what would be the, why, why, you know, our bodies aren't stupid. Why are they acting so stupidly? Mm -hmm. He's like, well, if you think about it, that would be a rare occurrence in the, in, in the old days to have all this extra energy. We would then, you know, you think, oh, go fix the house, go do this, go do all the stuff you can't afford to do. Like, oh, let's yeah. go scavenge. Let's go, you know, let's make sure there's no threats around because it was, it was the body assumes that's going to be a very short term uh, windfall. Sure. Yeah. Having a, having a surplus of food available was not the norm, right? right. <laughs> For a hundred thousand years of our existence. It's a, and probably right up until about a couple of hundred years ago, right? <laughs> Most people didn't have a surplus of food, right? Famine was pretty common right up until the 1800s, you know, like pretty much. Right. So it's only been a little while that famine, I mean, of course, some places you still get famine, but um, but but not the way that it used to be. It used to be a like an annual occurrence in most places in the world. There used to be famines in New York right up until about you know um, a couple of hundred years ago, I think. So it's um, so that's a big deal. It's, it's our bodies are still, and it's this 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 narrative about our modern bodies and brains acting for a time in which they are now ill-adapted you know like the modern world has changed modern food has changed modern information has changed and they're trying to do something that fit perfectly in archaic tanzania but doesn't work too well in you know modern day durham north carolina yeah. and the reason this you know this theory is so upsetting to people yeah is because it contradicts the biggest loser right mm. which is our current um cultural model of weight loss which mm -hmm. is near starvation and work out brutally like eight hours a day Sure. And, and get shamed for for getting tired and sure. giving up. Right? Yeah, so, or or that it suggests, or or there's any suggestion at all that exercise isn't beneficial for everything. Do you know what I mean? For the for the exercise fanatics, for the people who are like exercise is everything. If you're like, yeah, you should exercise. It helps with the stress response. It helps with the inflammatory response. It's not going to keep the weight off in the long term. That's that's all about nutrition. But you should still exercise. Even saying that will have people spitting out their tea. You know. <laughs> You know, it's spitting out the lattes or whatever it's going to be. You know, it's 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 stabbing them right in their orthodoxy, isn't it? Like getting straight in there as well, right? So so for you, so I want to bring that concrete example. Right, I heard that idea, and I'm like, that's fascinating, and that equates to me to the idea of kind of like a, a fixed neurological budget, and that things have to get pulled around, and if you get very stressed out, it will pull energy the other way, right, away from digestion, and it will pull energy away from um, repair and all of it, immunity, all of those things as well. So for me, I'm like, yeah, this, this kind of makes sense. I want to learn more about it. I haven't read the book yet and I haven't fully kind of folded it into <clears throat> my other concepts of, of what surrounds nutrition and exercise and everything else, right? There's, there's some points of conflict that I haven't quite dealt with yet. Like what happens in terms of strength training? Cause it's absolutely clear that, you know, when you eat a lot of food and it's built as muscle, not aerobic exercise, which is mostly what he was talking about. But when you gain you know, muscle, then that muscle requires more nutrition. You do eat more food. It's just displaced in a different way. What happens there? Is there an adaptation to that over time? And how does that compare to aerobics? Um, and then also yeah, ideas about, an yeah, sorry. He has an answer for that, by the way. He does. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to, to, so is it a short answer or is it? Very short answer. So okay. you, you burn calories based on your weight. Okay. So when you weigh more, you burn more calories. Okay. So there is an additional energy requirement just because your weight goes up anyway. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. Okay. Because you're slugging more around all day long and that stuff. All right. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. That, and, and that makes sense. Right. And that's one way of resolving those. But there's other things in between as well, which is, and this has been my general kind of issue with the straight calories in, calories out model in the past. It's not that that's not true. It's not that it's not true that if you create an energy deficit, like by eating less than your standard, whether, whether or not it's a fixed energy budget or one that fluctuates, if you eat less than that, then of course, right, you're you're um, going to create a deficit, and you will probably um, lose weight that way, right? Do you know what I mean? Um, but my problem is is that that basically it's a truism, right? It's an obvious truism, but it sidesteps psychology entirely. It just says then, so then all you have to do is eat less calories, right? Which is actually the problem. <laughs> the, the, not, the problem isn't that people don't know that they have an energy budget. And if only they knew this, then everything would change. It's just like, what do you have to do in order to consistently create that deficit? And so out of that come all of the potential diet solutions that people see, whether it's keto, whether it's going vegetarian to avoid fatty foods, if they're not ethical for it, or whether it's you know intermittent fasting or wherever it's going to be. It's like, and it might be that all of these things only work on the energy deficit model, right? But, um, but some of them work better with human psychology than others. And that's not something he addresses. He just says, oh, they're all fads and you just have to eat less food. It's just like, who cares? We're human beings and we have to figure out. And this is assuming that his view is absolutely true, right? I'm forced to kind of move my models around to fit that based on what's true. Right now, there's not a big conflict in my head. And the status that I've assigned Ponce's theory in my head is that, yeah, good enough. Yeah, I probably believe that right? For you, how did you arrive at good enough for Ponce's theory, given that there, it probably conflicted with other things that you know about too? Like he said to you, there's not really any benefit to eating a raw food diet and you can't really thrive on it. Do you know what I mean? And there's, and there's problems with veganism. He said things like that. And you probably like, there's something in you bristling, like there's some knowledge, there's some base in there that's, that's being stamped. How did you arrive at? Yeah, good enough. I believe that now. Uh-huh. Well, so, so one thing, I mean, I'll start with the, the externals. He's a professor at Duke University. Okay. That's a, that's a plus in my mind. Like I, okay. like, I feel like he's gone through a bunch of hurdles. He's mm-hmm. probably not a nut. Yeah. He's okay. probably not a faker. So then, expertise and trust again. Yeah. Trust and expertise. Then I go and I look at who said, who praised his book. And I, okay. look, at, and I look them up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who are his friends? Who are his mm-hmm. friends on Twitter? Who are and are they, do they, are they interested in truth? Are they publishing, you know, links to studies like, oh, look at this, this is interesting. Or mm-hmm. are they hardcore, you know, are they nasty? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. honestly, like, um, you know, there's, there's a group of, of plant-based doctors and researchers that I've been following on Twitter mm-hmm. who are very critical of the icons of the vegan movement. You know, mm. critical of Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Campbell, Dr. Barnard, Dr. McDougall, mm. um, saying that they're they're, you know, they're they're basically quacks because okay. they don't believe in science anymore. They've just got an idea and they're following. And I'm like that's really interesting because these are plant-based doctors. They're not keto, but they, they're you know, and they're they're saying we are the ones who are maintaining science. Mm. And you know, their motto is like RCT or go to hell, meaning randomized mm. clinical trial, or I don't, don't even talk to me about it. Mm. And it was very interesting, but I had to stop following them because they were nasty. Okay. <laughs> but were, does that were, make them, that, does that make them incorrect though? Why, why is nastiness like a, a well, but, but it's an interesting thing because you have to ask like, if they're being really nasty and defensive about their belief, what are they afraid of? That's the question that I, that I asked myself. Right. Right. Like, so nastiness means that their ego is, primary 
yeah. here. It's to me, it's just, it's a tell. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the people that, that I have met who have been the most gracious around mm -hmm. this, when you argue with them, they say, wow, that's really interesting. Can you send me a paper on that? I would, sure. I would love to look that up. I never heard of that. Yeah. Or, oh, I didn't really, you know, and it's disarming. So that's a rule of thumb. That's a little algorithm that you've come up with, right? If somebody's nasty and aggressive, they're probably afraid of something, hiding something or attached to their ego. That doesn't bode well for their ability to discern truth, all right? Uh, or their trustworthiness. Therefore, if Herman Ponser had come on your podcast and he'd been really aggressive with you, right? Even if he was saying all the same things with all the same people recommending him with all the same research and in your mind, all of the same logical parallels being drawn. If he'd have been on there being like, no, 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 no. That's not what it is at all. And that's why people who are vegans are just idiots. You know, would you have believed his theory to the same extent? Probably not. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I, it might be my problem, but I also, I also want to live a happy, like, compassionate sure. life so so like you know i wrote these books back in the day that were very aggressive in promoting a perspective and saying that other perspectives are wrong sure and you know i tried to make a career out of that and i found that it just didn't fit my personality like i'm not a debater yeah i'm not a yeah. fighter i like you know can't we all just get along sure yeah but um yeah I, I, to be clear I, i'm not like kind of saying oh that's a bad a yardstick by which to measure truth. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that's actually a valid yardstick, yardstick for measuring truth. But it, that's also about acknowledging that what you're doing is not coldly assessing the science and assessing his professorship as a Duke professor. More important in some ways than the fact that he is a Duke professor is that he is a calm, benign, and non-egotistical Duke professor. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. that's actually the quality that you've latched onto and yeah. said, okay, because of that, I'll, I'll listen to him to a greater extent than I want. So it's still about this discernment of people that you trust, right? And it might be somebody who's in an expert position. You might be like, oh, he's an expert. That's good enough for me. A lot of Americans are in my experience, distrustful of expertise or authority generally, right? In a way that we're not in Europe in a, fu in a funny way, like a lot of people are in Europe. So a lot of people go to the next thing down, which is, is, is it somebody, is it a very trusted friend or family member? Is it somebody who I feel is just very trustworthy? Or this other quality, this other kind of category that I kind of came up with, that, that it's a person that you feel to be a combination of unusually wise, right? Through like acquired knowledge, whether that's academic or life experience living in India and millions of places or wherever it's going to be. And that you feel this fundamentally incapable of deception that you're like, there's nothing to me that would suggest that they want to hoodwink me or something. Right. If you find those two things in a person, it's very powerful, isn't it? It's, and you, for me, it is anyway. And it's, uh, and I'm much more inclined to listen to them and give weight to their ideas than I am somebody else who's authoritative, but shifty and nasty. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, it's that it's, I'm thinking of Sam Harris, you know, I think he's a very intelligent guy. Um, he he has guests on the show. I listen to it all the time. I think he, has, he brings up really relevant issues that need to be discussed. But sometimes the way that he discusses them um, to me suggests that he needs to be right. And that he, do you know what I mean? And, and he can shoot people down if they don't agree with his ideas and things like that. And I'm like, mm, okay, well, I, I believe you to a point, but I might believe somebody else in your kind of oeuvre, right? Somebody else who's also like a thinker, a dark web guy or something, but who's not so vehement about it. Do you know what I mean? Who, who, who is going like, that's interesting. I want to read the study on that. You know, I'm more inclined to believe those than I am him, even though he does represent a source of, of, of knowledge for me, right? But it's not the source, but it's the same yardstick I'm using, right? I'm like, how much ego is invested? And is that a warning sign as to what else is coming on? What other baggage is coming with this knowledge? Yeah, yeah.
You know, something else I just realized is, and I haven't read Byrne yet, but he is a historian of his field. Mm. And I think that's very important for me that someone yeah. is a historian of their field, that they're not just deeply knowledgeable about this moment, about yeah. this body of knowledge. So he's talking about something that I frankly don't understand at all, which is like double water measuring of caloric expenditure. Mm -hmm. There's a thing with a, uh, an isotope and you measure the P and you like, you know, maybe in 11th grade, I could have done it as like a math problem. <laughs> but like now I'm like, I, you know what? Okay. So he says like, this is the gold standard for measurement and here's why. And I'm like, okay. But he goes through the history of how we measure calories Mm -hmm. And he knows his field and he understands, okay, here were the previous standards and here's how the new ones compare to those. And here's why there's, why we believe there's greater validity yeah. um, and reliability to these measures. So is there an aspect of transparency there as well? The more transparent somebody is, the more they show their work, right? <laughs> the yeah. more you're inclined to believe them as well. But if they're hiding something and being like, trust me, it's true. Don't, don't ask. Then it's, there's a different thing. Well, even, I mean, I don't know scientists who, who are, like, I'm not going to show my work, hmm. uh, but whether, um, I mean, you know, it's an attempt to understand it. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that I found really appealing about Herman Ponser is how much he values people like you who are explainers, hmm. right? So right before he was on my podcast, he was on Alan Alda's podcast. Hmm. Um, and he's like, I love Alan Alda. Of course, you know, I fanboyed him from MASH, but yeah. he's such a good psychom explainer. Mm. Mm. And so like Herman Ponser, like he does his best to explain what double water is. Like, mm. like I want you to understand why I use this method and why I think it's so great mm. and why we got this wrong in the past, right? Okay. He's, cause he's, he's saying, I have a new theory. It, mm. it blows the lid off of old theories. And mm. it's not because I'm brilliant. Mm. It's because we have better tools and we use them in a different way. And I had, I was so lucky to have access to this primate lab and to these people. And yeah. Okay. So, know. so he, so he offers a, a lot of weight coming with his argument and that's, that comes to the idea that old idea that if you present an unusual viewpoint, right. One that's contradictory, then it requires unusual evidence, you know, yeah. which is not always fair. Like sometimes you're like, Oh man, we can't get this. We can't do the experiment design yet. Or for various reasons, we can't do this yet. You know, and we could hark back to Galileo and all kinds of stuff and astronomy for that, but that holds true all the time. So, but, but it, it's not bad, right. If somebody tells you that they can levitate, right. If somebody tells you that they can lose weight, they can lose 10 pounds in a week, then I'd be like, yeah, that's probably true. I see boxers do it all the time, you know, <laughs> with weight cutting and stuff like that. But if somebody tells you they can levitate, I'm not going to believe you unless you present me with some pretty compelling evidence, like nothing short of me seeing you fly. And even then I'll be looking for wires and yeah. squatting underneath you and stuff like that. You know? um, you're going to have to give me some pretty compelling evidence for that unusual claim, right? And so I think that's a fair thing to hold in your head, right? So let's go to another couple of quick concrete examples just to kind of um, round this off. And one is um, Porges versus Huberman, right? So we had a little exchange uh, in which you were saying that Andrew Huberman on his podcast, The Huberman Lab, which I think is great too. He has some really, really good stuff on there, um, was somewhat disparaging the polyvagal theory movement. Um, not saying that the theory itself was bullshit, but just that it's been extended. They're over their skis, that lots of people um, are making claims as to its diagnostic capacity or its therapeutic capacity that aren't really demonstrated by what he said. And he, and he suggested... The, the, the holes that he's knocking in it. And actually, Paul just acknowledges this in the updated versions of his book as well, is that anatomists 
um, so, you know, to, if you don't know what polyvagal theory is, we've had like another podcast on it and things. And Stephen Porges was on an earlier episode, but essentially it's saying that there, it's not just fight or flight versus rest and digest. And that you have, um, two branches to your autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, which is what's always taught in textbooks. And that's the way it goes. It's medical orthodoxy. Um, but there are actually kind of two functional branches. And this is the key word, I think functional branches to the parasympathetic um, nerve and its and its function, the ventral and the dorsal, meaning in front and behind. And he says that the ones kind of associated, uh, one set are associated with kind of social engagement and like positive calming yourself down, uh, associated with eye movement, facial expressions, lots of other things. And the other one is associated with like a, a deep kind of shutdown, right? And there's an interplay which leads to a spectrum of stress responses, right? Not just fight or flight or rest and digest, but a spectrum of things, including kind of engagement and stimulation, social engagement, somewhere between fight or flight and shutdown, you know, lots and lots of little things, which adds a lot of diagnostic capacity and seem to explain a lot more of the clinical um, obvious data, behavioral data that he was seeing. And then in the book, you know, and in his writings, he kind of extrapolates to animal evolution and physiology and new neonatal development, all kinds of things, right? So there seems to be a lot that goes into it. And it's been a powerful idea that lots of therapists have used and, and I've used it. And it seems to segue very well with lots of systema thinking, with lots of, with other viewpoints on stress and um and the body even from like chinese medicine and ayurvedic medicine things like that it seems to be a very powerful unifying idea um but hoopman's problem with it is one when anatomists look for the two branches of the nerve it doesn't quite work out that way like it doesn't physically look that way in the body right um therefore it's not quite true the basis the, the what he's basing things on that there's physically a branch like that isn't quite true it's more like a loop or it doesn't quite go the way that we say it is um and two even if it is true to some extent and it's, and it's useful in some areas saying that if somebody has hypermobile joints, it's probably because they have a, you know, a poor vagal tone or something like that, or, or poor control over their um, similar autonomic response to, you know, dysautonomia or something like that is going too far, but they might just have hypermobility because they have shitty joints or bad nutrition or they've injured themselves or something like that. Right. So, so to your point, so how do you then decide whether or not Huberman has said, blast that out of the water and maybe I shouldn't believe Porges anymore. And that's no longer something that's important to me or is Porges still good enough, but Huberman's just pointed out the edges of what defines good enough. Yeah. So I think, you know, when I think about it, is something true. So one, one of them is, is there a mechanism, mm -hmm. right? Like, do we know, like, does it make sense? Like, oh, we have this thing in our body that does mm -hmm. this. We know that, um, you know, sucrose is converted to uh, ATP. So yeah. that makes sense, whatever. Yeah. Right. So like, if there's no mechanism, then we have to then like, well, I don't see how that could be true or why it would be. Right. So but that's a big statement because we, we find things all the time and we make, you know, we didn't know what the mechanism was for penicillin, for example, but we just found that there was something that funguses make that kill bacteria. And we used it successfully to cure half the world of in infectious diseases. And we didn't have a mechanism for years and we didn't have a mechanism of how, um, mental activity affects the body via stress for a long time. We just empirically saw that it was true, but there was no direct mechanism or there were woolly mechanisms, wrong mechanisms. Darwin famously thought that genes blended together and, and came out with offspring instead of like in the digital way that they are inherited and there's dominance and recession and crossovers and differential gene activation. Like he had no idea how genes worked. He just knew there was something heritable 
but the, the wide sweep of his theory is still true. It's just false in some areas, right? So you can actually, you can have something very useful and true to an extent without knowing the exact mechanism, right? Right. It was just, that's one area. So yeah. It's one of the things I look for. Is okay. There, is there a known mechanism? If not, then, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Okay. A second is sort of an evolutionary uh, filter. Like if okay. that were true, would you and I be alive to have this conversation today? That's an interesting one. That's a good one. Yeah. Right. So I think about that in terms of, you know, people's propensity to put on fat. Like yeah. if, if we didn't, or if, if we needed, you know, if, if, if we needed animal protein every day mm. and it was a requirement, would you and I be alive to have this conversation based on human history? Like mm. probably not. Like if we couldn't go a day without, you know, oxygen, yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Protein. No. Right. So, so that just as a, you know, another filter, but for me, the, the, the most important filter is like the, what I learned from about science is that the, the test of a theory is its predictive ability. Mm -hmm. Right. So does this, you know, and the, you know, so for Ponser's theory about burn, you know, who I've talked to who are like, Oh my God, that makes so much sense mm. is former fat people. Hmm. Right. So that's, I had the conversation with Josh Lajani, who lost 230 pounds. I was like, absolutely. That's, you know, that's exactly my experience. And I didn't understand it. Yeah. We're talking to a bunch of other people like, yeah, I was exercising. I, I changed my diet. I lost all this weight. I exercised more and I couldn't get it off. I, right. Like, so, oh, does this theory, you know, predict what I, you know, does it help me get what I want? Does it help our society achieve what it wants? Yeah. Whether it's absolutely true or not. So for mm. me, the good enough is, you know, can, you know, can I predict an eclipse with it? Does, does mm. it work? Can I predict, um, you know, the effects of an economic policy mm. on economic theory? Mm. So like, like, I think that's the best we can do. And, you know, so Newton was wrong, right, mm. about Newtonian physics, but it still works well for basketball. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, and then just to tie this off with a vague reference to Sistema, since we've been talking for like an hour with <laughs> mostly just about vague philosophy and then health and nutrition and things. It's like it, the question that popped into my head with this one is like the ongoing argument all the time about slow and soft work in Sistema and whether that has vid validity in real combative fighting arts, right? Like why do we spend so much time working soft? Um, why do we at all ever be compliant as, as training partners? Why aren't we just giving it full tilt all the time so that the other person can see what works with full tilt, full, um, full tilt all the time? Um, so, and there's kind of two camps in that, right? You've got the, it's like Sistema versus wrestling versus MMA. And like the wrestling MMA crowd uh, are kind of like, well, look who's in the cage. Look who's wrestling and doing really well uh, and fighting well in the MMA cage. That proves who can do it and who can't, right? <laughs> and, and that's what works. Um, but interestingly, there's other, and the Sistema camp or the traditional martial arts camp might say, yeah, but that's not what it's designed for. And look what happens when, you know, MMA fighters get into knife fights or what, when they get set upon by two or three people, they move in very sloppy ways that don't help them and they're less likely to survive. So we're training for something different than a linear back and forward attack and, and also, you know, capacities for escape and all kinds of stuff like that. But interesting, there's also some wriggle room in the middle in which people training things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or even boxing right? We'll do light sparring or light rolling, right? They'll agree not to go full force and full speed so that they can feel things out, learn new techniques, practice new combinations, 
um, study distance and timing, you know, all of these things. And nobody denigrates Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners or boxers when they do that. They're not like, why the hell isn't Mike Tyson going full tilt on his trainer there, his elderly trainer? Why isn't he smashing him in the face <laughs> doing all these things, right? It's um, So it seems as a means to an end, as long as the end result is powerful. I think that's what it is. And so for me, that argument about soft work and things, it's like, well, Okay. Can you, can you okay. just define soft and slow work? Because I'm going to put this on my podcast and people may, will not understand. Gotcha. Okay. So it, it's the, so if you think of like um, maybe a, a boxer in a full boxing match or, or a wrestler in a wrestling match, like obviously both people are typically trying about as hard as they can, right? They're, they're going about as fast as they can. They're using all the power that they can. They're delivering as much damage or as much power as they can in a short time in order to try and win a contest, right? Um, and that's necessary to an extent, right? If you're trying to win a contest and that's the motivation. Um, but if you think of uh, a boxer just softly, just kind of shadow boxing, not throwing everything with massive power, but just kind of jabbing the hand out there, slipping, weaving, moving in kind of smaller ways, or even just practicing the mechanics of a punch, just sending it out slowly, bringing it back so that they can feel what's going on. Or you can imagine a wrestler slowly going through the motions of a new and complex throw or something like that, right? Um, those things exist in those arts, and they're looked at as training tools to get you up to the place that they will help you to compete. Um, with the intermediary step of like, let's spar a bit faster, let's spar a little bit harder. And then, but nobody spars full tilt ahead of a, of a match because you'll injure yourself and then, <laughs> you know, or get knocked out and then you won't be up, up for, the, for the match itself, right? So there are, there are always gradations of this. In Sistema, we do more of this than is typical, I would say. We spend more of our time in this slow kind of um, shadow boxing, matching, timing blending type space um, with a view to developing more kind of neurological skill versus outward power and external power and things like that. Right. So, so that's, that's what it is. So it, you, you can think of it somewhere between kind of martial arts drill practice. Like if he does this and you do this and something like contact improv, you know, <laughs> it's like there, there's a dance like element to it, right? There's a, there's an ability to flow around each other and feel what's going on and feel sensitivity to pressure, which is hard to do at speed, not impossible, um, but it's hard to do at speed, right? So you have to learn it this way. That's the idea. Does that kind of sum yeah. it up? Or? Yeah. And so the idea is that the, MM, the mixed martial arts people are, uh, are looking down at Sistema because they've seen a couple of YouTube videos of Vladimir yeah. and they say, well, he, that's not real. It's yeah. Or, or they're just like, well, where's the result? Where's my people doing it? Even without training with people or something like that. And again, the, the, where people fall down on this or where people, which side of the fence they fall on as to whether or not it's useful or not, and whether they stay with the training or not, seems to come down to these same kind of yardsticks, right? They're like, okay, first let's see if somebody I trust has done this. Right. So I, I saw a, somebody uh, who's a, grandmaster of like a Arnis fighting, like stick fighting in the Philippines. And he's a Salat practitioner. He's a brilliant martial artist in his own field, highly respected, has never done Sistema, but watched a video of one of our high level guys, Martin Wheeler, moving softly around people and then working into things. And it's just saying, this is superb. This reflects so many things that we train. Um, most people can't understand what they're looking at here. And as a result, a lot of other people are like, yeah, I should look into this guy. You know, so the authority of this guy that, you know, somebody or Dan Inosanto, like, or Higgin Machado and another recognized features, other recognized um, figures in martial arts um, professing saying you really should train with Vladimir or you really should train with Martin. He, he has a transcendent ability that you need to know about. Right. Um, that lends weight because people put trust in them. So again, it's an authority figure that people know that they can trust. Um, and then it's kind of crowdsourced. Right. And so you have this crowd of martial artists um, on something like bullshido.net who will all agree whether or not they agree 
whether or not something is real, you know? And on the basis of that, some people will read those and then be like, oh, I guess I'm not going to do Taekwondo then, or I'm not going to do Sistema, or maybe Krav Maga is the one for me, right? It's it's just kind of, it's the con- constitution of knowledge by public opinion, right? And, and again, like everything else, this is extrapolated and pushed out by social media and people arguing with each other and that kind of thing. But it seems to me, it seems like the same thing. And so how do I agree on whether or not the truth of the, of the validity and the efficacy of soft work and the way of training that we do in Sistema is good enough for me, right? Do I know that it's 100% true and that it's 100% the best way of training and all the other ways of training are, are not true? No, I don't. And I don't claim to. I, all I know is, is that I've seen and felt people who I know and trust who have had to use um, their skills in real live environments, in very, very dangerous law enforcement or military environments or security environments. Um, they're extraordinarily stable under pressure. They're extraordinarily calm people. And something about this methodology builds those, right? Versus other people that I talk to who are very, very skilled fighters, but are very nervous, anxious people who always seem to get into fights and who always seem to be limping, right? They're always injured at all times. They just seem to find ways to damage themselves before they even get in the fights with other people, right? So it's, so I, I look at that and the authority thing. And then in, in the crowdsourcing element, I'm like, well, there are enough people that I trust to warrant my adherence to this as a view. And, and it works within this set of conditions and situations. So, so I see soft work as a, as a necessary training tool and a very extremely valuable training tool towards a certain goal, but I try not to be fanatical about it. I don't say that that's the only way of training and I don't believe it is. I think if all that you do is the soft work, then you never find out how you can apply that at speed or how you can apply that with tension as well. So again, I'm applying these criteria. There's a little bit of authority, trust. There's a little bit of, um, crowdsourcing of knowledge right and and there's a little bit of like is there a mechanism for this and yeah there is you can look at the neurological literature about how we learn things and we learn better slow and we learn better in flow than we do when we're just trying as hard as we can and we're sympathetically activated right so there's mechanisms as you pointed out there right um is there extraordinary proof for it working like in the form of the people that can do it there is for me right so it's um so all of those things i arrive at like are good enough in terms of soft work. But the problem is, is that you can't transmit that immediately to somebody else. They have to go through their own process of discernment. And I think that's probably necessary, right? Everybody, you shouldn't accept things at complete face value, whether it's a, a nutritional guideline or somebody oh. telling you how to exercise, how to build strength or how to you know, run a marathon, um, or whether it's somebody telling you how to train martial arts. Like you should, you should, to an extent, kind of weigh things up for yourself, not be the final arbiter yourself. You should rely on other people and judgment and expertise as well. Um, but there should be a little tension there. I, I think it's healthy to have a little bit of dynamic tension in that. Yeah, I mean, who who wants to be, um, you know, at the mercy of a guru who might change their mind? Yeah, yeah. You know, so the, I follow a, a meditation teacher, Adyashanti, who says, "Wouldn't it be terrible if someone could give you the truth, because then they could take it away from you?" Hmm. Hmm. That's um. Yeah, that's very. Uh, yeah, that's that's quite brilliant, actually. Yeah, thinking about that. Yeah, that, and that speaks to that the problem of our reliance on trust as a means for constituting knowledge. Again, it can be exploited, but that doesn't mean that we can't use trust as a, or shouldn't use trust as a means for building knowledge. Right. So, all right. Takeaways from all of this, right. Um, How can we protect ourselves from false knowledge? There's some fairly basic things that go on there, right? So unusual 
planes require unusual evidence. That's good. Okay, you say you can fly, show me. You say you're telekinetic and have crazy powers. I'm going to need to see a little bit of flying stuff before I'm going to believe that. And if not, I'm going to sit with my belief that most people can't fly or have telekinetic powers. Um, another one is, does it have the hallmarks of fanaticism? Do you know what I mean? Are, is there a social group that's deeply committed to it in a way that seems like beyond the effectiveness of what it is, right? Um, does it have kind of... It's, it's belief in supernatural force is kind of inherent in it, right? Does it put aside mechanisms and say, trust me, it just flows that way. It's energy or it's whatever it is and that kind of stuff, right? That doesn't necessarily mean, again, that it's not true or it's not useful. It just might be a hallmark of something that has its own self-generating algorithm, right? It's its own little knowledge system that keeps ballooning out of control as well. Um, and another one is try and see, I think an interesting one is trying to see the, whatever small truth is within the other person's viewpoint to your point about the scientist, if somebody challenges you and says, my, my research not only didn't duplicate your results, it shows the opposite. Trying to see the truth, what's possible then? How can we both be true, right? So in the case of Kahneman and Tversky, them going sort of saying, well, they must have got their results somehow. So what truth is shared by both of our things? Not it's me versus them, but like, ah, our truth might not be as big as I thought it was. There's probably isn't either. Maybe we can find a nested nested uh, combination that actually includes both of those and so for me it's the same with soft work in martial arts versus training like um harder um, and with higher pressures and, and skills it's the same with diet right i'll accept Ponce's fixed energy budget budget hypothesis but i'll also hang on to the idea that psychology um the, your microbiome and, and that your metabolism in terms of metabolic health and how you process sugars and how fast are also important. Now, do I know which of those effects is dominant? The, 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 the effect of like the caloric fixed budget is so big that the others are almost negligible. I don't know. I'm not sure yet that that requires more work in the work, in the words of most scientists at the end of every single paper ever, right? This remains to be seen. Um, but I'm happy, like, I'm happy juxtaposing those ideas and holding multiple truths in my head until such a time as I can resolve them. I don't need to know one way or the other immediately. Is, is there something that's different in the way that you discern things or the, your kind of third route? No, I think that's a, that's a great summary of, you know, uh, what I want to think about. Like, you know, I'm human and I'm fallible and I get things wrong all the time and I get overexcited by, great ideas because they're a good story and yeah. they're, you know, but I think when I, when I, I mean, one of the, one of the things I do is I run things by you a lot. Mm. I, I, I can feel myself becoming a cheerleader for something. And I'm like, I need a little Glenn here. To, <laughs> to, <laughs> I need a damper. I need somebody just to <laughs> just peel my fire today. <laughs> Thanks man. I'm touched that, that I hold that place, that role in your, in your life. <laughs> One of the things I think about, this was, this was from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I think was written in the early 70s. I love that book. It's my favorite. One of my faves. When he talks about, like, at a certain point, we thought science was going to give us all the answers. Like, there were people writing in the 60s and 70s, like, we basically know everything. Mm -hmm. And we're worried, like, what is science going to do once we know everything? Mm -hmm. He's like, no, science is like a circle. And, like, what, our knowledge is the interior of that circle, and our ignorance is the perimeter. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the diameter hmm. and the bigger our knowledge gets the more we don't know sure right so yeah. right the area as the area increases the uh the unknowns increase and that's yeah. never going to end yeah and, well put and so like how exciting yeah you know how exciting to 
you know, like there's a, there's a researcher now, Kevin Hall at the National Institutes of Health, who's been doing studies that we thought were impossible, like mm. bringing people into the lab and feeding them and monitoring them for like three weeks at a time and testing like, you know, Gary Taub's hypothesis of that carbs make you fat and fat doesn't make you fat and coming up with actual numbers mm. and that, you know, like, wow, like it's so exciting mm. to be part of science. And I think, I think the, for me, the, the wonder and just the, the privilege of, of we have this society in which we don't have to spend all our time hunting and gathering. We can go look for this knowledge in this particular way. Yeah. Like if, when you lose that, mm. then I don't trust you. <laughs> and when you mm. have that, I trust you. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was, uh, I'm just reminded of one thing as well in the, um, That was going to be an interesting point and it fled my mind as soon as it came in there, there we go. but um just just to keep everything in context right in, in vladimir's words or michael's words and my systema instructors they would just say don't be a fanatic about anything including systema you know like and and what is a fanatic you know when you when you look at the definition of it it's like it's somebody that has an unreasonable zeal about something right it's <laughs> there un- and it might be a religion it might be a philo- it might be a political viewpoint but it doesn't have to be you can be a crossfit fanatic you can be a vegan fanatic you can be a keto fanatic right you can be a science fanatic as well right so it's important to keep things in the wider context of just like what's the relationship between me and this knowledge between me and the person who's giving me this knowledge, right? And and can we relate that all to the place that we're in, like in the words of Tyson, you know, it's like, I think it's really important to keep that because that stops us going down the rabbit hole of either believing something to be true because one guy who claims to represent science is true or believing that something is true because one guy who claims to represent, you know, an alternative viewpoint is true, whatever it's going to be. It's, it's trying to keep that big picture and that joy, like you said, of of being okay with the fact that you don't know. Like, I, I honestly think in terms of success in, in health, right. In, in, in fixing your kind of nutritional, uh, your, your eating plans as opposed to your diet or your lifestyle um, that you have, as opposed to like short-term ways of losing weight and things is about your adherence to a set of principles or ideas that you can hold consistently and be like, good enough for me. And it works and I feel healthy on it. Um, and in a wider context of things, this is not damaging the planet or people or whatever it's going to be within my own ethic system, however I construct that. And that works. And there's a solidity to that. Even if you don't know that it's 100% the best way of eating ever, it might turn out that the best way of eating ever is that we all eat amino acids um, that are produced by a machine, you know, in exact quantities to the things. And that might be true. I don't want it to be true. Do you know what I mean? But that might be the ultimate answer. I still might not eat that way in the end. Do you know what I mean? There might be trade-offs and there might be other ways of going. And the same thing with martial arts practice i think for the from my point of view and for people who train systema in my experience the people who do the best are the ones who are okay with not knowing they're like oh wow i got a bit better and i learned a lot more and i can do more things but it just seems like i've opened up a whole bunch of other ways in which i realize that i fail or i'm trying too hard or i'm too tense uh, and that's okay if you can't get okay with that you're not going to progress you're just going to fall off if you're looking for the black and white answer if you're looking for the the viewpoint of the fanatic, if you're looking for somebody to tell you exactly how it is and how it always will be, then you've already lost something, I think, in that, regardless of the field that you're working in. 
Yeah, it reminds me of a quote uh, in Sapiens by uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who said the scientific yeah. revolution of the you know, 16th century, roughly, was not a revolution of knowledge. It was a revolution of ignorance. Mm. It was like, oh, we don't know. And that fueled all the mm. discovery. Beautiful. On all right. Note, I hope we'll you like that. that so let's up. talk That's about beautiful. the stuff we Thanks got so to much, talk Howard. about. So first of all, for, uh, 482 the is the number. If you want to get Thank the show you. notes for fun. today's episode, it's plantyourself.com slash 482. Um, running movement news. Um, I've been doing um, some heavier morning workouts. And so my back tends to be sore all day, but it, it feels like a different sore. It feels doesn't, doesn't feel like a Oh gosh, is it about to go out sore, but more of a, oh, you, you worked it good sore, which I hope will, will translate into less pain and, and better range of motion mobility over time. And I did a, almost a six mile run today. I have a long, long day today. Um, I'm, I'm getting this recording in between six different Zoom calls uh, that are all related to a great thing, to the, the release of uh, my and Peter Bregman's new book, You Can Change Other People which uh, you can find on Amazon or your local bookstore or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or maybe even airports someday. Who knows? Um, I would love it if you were to get a copy and read it and uh, give us a review and let us know what you think. Um, so Garden News been doing a lot of weeding, um, sort of indiscriminate weeding with a hoe, like clearing beds entirely. Uh, we got a whole bunch of seeds for, for cover crops and for cool weather greens, a lot of kale. We got one pound of kale seeds. Do you know how many seeds are in one pound of kale seeds? I don't, but it's a lot. Um, if you wanted to like, put it in a glass jar and guess the number, you would probably be um, checking that for a long time before you, uh, you had something definitive. 